0: Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm Jody, your host today, and I'm speaking with Professor David Kovar from the Department of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology. Dr. Kovar was the winner of the 2011 Biological Science Division Distinguished Educator and Mentor Award. He's published nearly 100 articles and was recently awarded the 2022 Quantrell Undergraduate Teaching Award. He's here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor.
1: Hi, my name is David Kovar. I'm a professor in the Department of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology, and I have a joint appointment or secondary appointment in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of Chicago. Um, My lab studies the basic functions of a cell. Uh, In particular, we're interested in how cells divide how cells crawl, um, how cells polarize, et cetera. You know, and as I said, these are just fundamental functions that uh, a, a cell normally does for development of an organism or for maintenance of an organism. And in particular, we're interested in the machinery inside of a cell that actually facilitates those processes. And that machinery is something called the actin cytoskeleton. And now cytoskeleton stands for cell skeleton, And basically, I think a simple way of thinking about the cytoskeleton is it's kind of like the cell's uh, Lego building blocks. And what's interesting is that a cell can take this pool of Lego building blocks and can assemble different structures or networks that are essentially little machines that drive these different fundamental processes. So a cell can build these uh, Legos into a network that is in the form of a ring that physically divides a cell into two for cell division, or it can assemble these Legos into another network or machine that pushes a cell forward so that it can crawl or move uh, along. And so what we're really interested in understanding is a general phenomenon that we call self-organization, which is to say we're interested in how you can take these same components, these same Lego building blocks, and assemble them into these entirely different structures that are organized in a particular way that facilitates these very different processes.
0: You know, one of our audiences for these podcasts is students trying to figure out what they want to study. So can you talk a little bit about your own education? And did you always want to, did you always know you wanted to study science or become a science professor?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And so uh, it really, when, when I hear that question, it really takes me back to, when I was much younger, even in high school or before. So my father was a professor of chemistry at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. And so there was definitely a period in my life when I thought I would grow up to be a chemistry professor. And I think I always thought that or for a long period of time, but somewhere along the way in high school, I actually became more interested in a completely different endeavor. And that is the sport of soccer. And so For full honesty, I went to college primarily with the focus of playing soccer, and that's why I chose to go to Ohio Wesleyan University. While there, I also majored in chemistry, uh, but I very quickly realized that I wasn't in love with chemistry. There was a period where I was a journalism major, even. What I think is unusual is it wasn't until the second semester of my junior year that I took a molecular biology course, and this course just changed my life. Um, This course was about things like DNA replication, you know, how cells um, replicate their DNA, how cells um, make DNA into RNA that then translated into protein, just some fundamental biological processes. And it just blew me away. And at that point, I realized that I really wanted to be a cell biologist. And so at that point is, is when I really got serious about science. And I then went on to graduate school at Purdue University which ultimately led to me with a career as a professor, as a cell biologist.
0: So I'm curious about like the the actual blowing your mind thing. Like, so was it just the basic science of it? Or do you remember, did it connect with something in the real world for you in a new way?
1: Yeah, I guess it was, it was really just the basic science of it. I mean, I think, as I mentioned, you know, even as a young kid, maybe it was my dad's influence, um, I was always really interested in science in general. but something about just understanding how a cell works and being really excited about these underlying little molecular details that protein A binds to protein B, which facilitates this process. It just somehow really left left a deep impression on me. And I knew from that moment that this is what I wanted to study for the rest of my life. And so it it really wasn't anything more... Uh, exciting. And then just something triggered in my mind that this was the coolest thing I had ever seen.
0: That's an envious kind of magical moment that you had to be laser focused on something like that. So tell tell me a little bit about uh, choosing Purdue as the school that you went to for your advanced studies.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's multiple reasons I, I ended up at Purdue. So um, since I didn't decide that I wanted to be a, a you know, a, a biology major until very late in the process, Of course, I was I was a step or maybe even two steps behind. You know, I I frantically took a lot of courses my senior year to finish up the major and so forth. And in fact, I even remember upon making the decision that I wanted to apply to graduate school to work on a Ph.D., I suddenly had the realization that I needed to take the, you know, the GRE exam. And looked it up and, you know, I think it was like that coming Saturday was the last Saturday you could take the exam before applications were due. And I actually had to drive like two hours away and and sit there on a wait list. Luckily, someone didn't show up and I got to go in and take this exam. So I was really behind in the whole process and there and there weren't so many places that I was able to apply to. And Purdue University was just a wonderful fit for me. I was very lucky that I got in there, I think, in retrospect. And it was still close to Ohio. And there was a significant other that, that mm. uh, was still back at my school in Ohio. So I didn't want to leave too far from Ohio at the time either.
0: Was there a mentor or somebody who was helping you through that process of deciding where to go? And
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, many years later, looking back on it. So, so Ohio Wesleyan is a small liberal arts school. I think, you know, 2,000-ish students. And I think I was very fortunate to be at a small liberal arts school. Because the classes were small, and and you know you got to know your professors very well, and and so it was a professor there um, who who basically really encouraged me, and and gave me the confidence that even though it was very late in the game, that I should still you know try to try to go to grad school at that point. Um, so that that was a big moment, um, and then on top of that, I think. The mentor that I had at Purdue University, my PhD research advisor, Chris Steiger, he he really made all the difference as well. And and I think one of the, the best decisions I ever made was picking a laboratory to do my research, not actually based on the research subject, but more so on the advisor. Um, and, and what I mean by that is picking the advisor that I thought would be the best to teach me and train me how to be the best scientist possible. I think that was a, a really important decision in my life.
0: So can you say a little bit more about that for somebody who might be listening and like right now they're in the process of trying to pick an advisor or a mentor? What, tell us a little bit more about what did you say the person's name was? I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, Professor Chris Steiger, who is a professor of biology, plant biology at at, at Purdue University. So before I go into that, because I think your question is really important, is, is I should also say that as a professor here at the, at the University of Chicago, I have been heavily involved in graduate education my entire time here. And in fact, that has expanded into a leadership role whereby for, for multiple years, I was chair of a graduate program here at the University of Chicago. And in fact, in the last six or so months, I've now been Dean for Graduate Affairs in the Biological Science Division. And so this question you're asking me, which is how do you choose an academic advisor is a question that I get all the time. And it's a question that, that I think is really important. Okay. So the answer when people ask, how do you choose an advisor? I, I think, of course, there's no one size fits all. Um, but I think one thing that most students do is they think very carefully about the subject. You know, so they think about, well, what is the science I'm most interested in? What particular subject do I want to study? And, and I agree that's really important. You have to join a laboratory or an area of research that really excites you because that's what gets you up in the morning. But I think what is sometimes overlooked or even often overlooked is this idea that in addition to the science, you're joining a laboratory, you're joining a professor who's running that laboratory, and you're also, of course, joining essentially a family or, or even I often think of it as a sports team where, you know, there are other graduate students. There are postdocs. There are technicians. You know, it's a, it's a group of people that you're joining and you'll be working with them for the next four, five, six years. And so I was very fortuitous and a senior student. Um, when I started graduate school at Purdue, pulled me aside and told me the importance of making sure when you're picking a lab, to think carefully also about the environment, the trainer, et cetera. And so Chris Steiger was a fairly new professor early in his career and he had a lot of energy and it was very clear that this would be someone that would really be vested in my development as a scientist and really go put a lot of effort into training me into in how, how to be a good scientist. And so I think that that's really important to think not only about the subject that you're going to study but also the environment that that you'll be in. And again, I just want to reiterate that there's no right or wrong answer to the environment. What might be the best environment for one student may not be the best environment for another student. So you just really need to figure out what you think is the environment that will be best suited for your development. And and think carefully about that when making your decision on which lab to join.
0: That sounds like really great advice. I I hope people are taking notes as they're listening here. (laughs) Um so what do you think makes a great scientist? You've mentioned that a couple times now.
1: Yeah, well, I think there's there's lots of attributes. I th- I think being inquisitive, you know, being curious I think is is the most thing, you know, always asking, well, why does it work this way? Um I think creativity is really important. You know, there's a lot of wonderful scientists out there, but those that I think that have stand that have stood out in in my life are those that are particularly creative. And I and I think creative can mean you know more than one thing. I think creative can mean identifying interesting questions that maybe others don't see. Creative can also be thinking of interesting ways to solve or investigate a problem you're interested in. Um, so those are really important. I think um, uh, learning how to be organized, which I think is just a general uh, a, a general trait that is is common to successful people in whatever career you might have. And then I think more than anything, just being passionate. That is really key to success in anything you do in life. If you're passionate about it, you know, I think that you'll therefore put in the effort you need to be successful because it's it's not work at that point. You know, it's it's fun. It's what you enjoy doing. And so um, I think passion is is a key to success in almost anything one might do.
0: So I do want to ask you about how these things like creativity and passion and, and your mentoring shows up in your own Kovar lab. But before we get to that, Aside from Dr. Stager, are there other mentors or great cheerleaders you've had in your in your professional life? That helped yeah, you the
1: good, life? good question. So, so, you know, so it's kind of a long winded process to get to the point where you're a professor at a university. So, of course, you're an undergrad and and I had advisors there, as I mentioned, who were important. Then you go to graduate school where you earn your Ph.D., and Chris Steiger was my mentor there. But then after that, you go off and do um, what is called a postdoc, which is where again you spend three, four, five years under being advised by by another researcher who helps sculpt your career. And 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 for that, that was uh, Tom Pollard at Yale University, and and he was really instrumental in my development as well. So you know, wh- whereas I think often for when you're earning your PhD, your advisor is is often very hands on, you know. Actually, you know, I spoke with with Professor Steiger, you know, every day at Purdue at Purdue University about what experiments I was doing, how to do the experiments, how to think about interpreting them, and and so forth. Well, when you transition to your postdoc, um, it's really important to become even more independent, where you're given the freedom to really you know follow your own instincts to really start to think about things yourself. And and Tom Pollard was was wonderful in creating an environment where there was structure and camaraderie and teamwork but also really allowed a lot of independent, you know, in, independence, which I think is really critical because that's what you need when you go start your own lab is you have to be independent, right? You have to you have to really not only be thinking of what what are the important questions to go after and the ones that are actually experimentally tractable, but then also how to how to uh, advise um, new students and new postdocs uh, to work in that area. and then, and then, even here at the University of chicago, when you when you start your position, you know you're a young new assistant professor, and you have somewhat no idea what you're doing. and you have to you're given an empty lab and you have to buy equipment and you have to, you know, um, recruit people to your lab and train them. And so I had a lot of wonderful senior colleagues who gave me plenty of advice about how to set up a lab how to properly pick people to come to your lab, um, how to help train people and so forth. And so, you know, I think the overarching message, which was kind of implied by your question is, yeah, you, you need people to advise you all the way along. You know, I've been here almost 20 years now, and I still go to senior colleagues for advice when certain questions come up. I think you should never stop taking advice. I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, I think I think that never being afraid to ask questions is like a message you can't give to students too many times.
1: (laughs) I I agree. And and you should never be afraid to say you don't know something and that you need help. I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this seems like a great segue to talk about about your lab now and and what you're doing with your team. So Kovar Lab is your current lab. Was that your first lab or?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the Kovar Lab just simply means that, you know, it's my last name. I started here in 2005 as an assistant professor. And as I said, you have this empty lab. um, And then and then you slowly build, you buy equipment and and then you, you know, you recruit graduate students, you hire a technician, you hopefully recruit postdocs. And then and then you just start addressing whatever, whatever question, you know, that you're interested in. And then you, you just build up over time.
0: And so have you been, you're circling around questions related to the same small subject area that you're interested in in terms of cells and how they, how they operate and how they structure themselves. Have you been pretty much on the same Thing for all these years since 2005, or does the subject kind of switch a bit? And does that is that determined by your interests, the people who are working with you? How do, how do you all decide what you're working on at any given time?
1: Yeah, so I think I think you know there's different strategies. But when I started my lab, I basically continued the line of research that I had done as a postdoc, and then started that here. And I would say I would say the, the biggest change over the years has been how uh, the, the focus. And what I mean by that is I I was very narrowly focused, I think, at first. And I think that 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 was probably the right decision to make, you know, because you have, you know, fewer people and and you only have a certain amount of time to get work done before you come up for tenure. And so I was very focused. And so what I would say the big change over time has been is that I've really broadened my, my areas of interest. And so I think to an outsider, it would look like, oh, these are all the same questions we've been studying for the last almost 20 years but you know we really you know branched out so for example to try to put this in terms of the legos that i was talking about earlier when i started my lab i was really focused on one particular network in a cell at a time and we were really interested in just particular lego blocks and how they fit into the puzzle and then over time what we've done is expanded to think about not one particular lego block or one particular network built by a Legos, but to think about all of them at the same time in a cell, and that's why we think about this idea of self-organization. So we've really expanded that. And then your question about how you think about projects—you know, like you know—when I started my lab, I think it, it largely came from from me and what I was thinking was important. But I think the the fun part of running a lab is you very quickly realize that the people you recruit to your lab are just incredibly smart. They have their own interests and their own passions. And so basically, you can follow their interests because you build this lab with students and postdocs that come in with different expertise themselves, their own unique ideas. And so really, we can just kind of follow what they're doing. And so I've, I've had just a few or many brilliant students and postdocs, but there have been particular students and postdocs that have Kind of brought in their ideas that were just phenomenal that we, that, that, you know, the whole lab has followed over the years. I would say that another major change that has occurred slowly over the last 20 years is the collaborative nature of the work that my lab does. So I think in the early days, the work we did was really focused within our own lab. Whereas over the last 20 years and, and even really currently is that most of the work we do is highly collaborative, meaning everyone in my lab's projects um, often are heavily influenced or involved with other labs, either here at the University of Chicago or or outside the university. And in fact, many of the people in my lab, their project is really joint between my lab and and neighboring labs here at the university. And that's really, really exciting because, because we only have certain expertises, whereas other labs have their own expertises. And so By bringing two labs together, you can do science that you wouldn't have been able to do on your own.
0: Sounds really exciting. I'm I'm jealous that I didn't go into science and get to be part of one of these teams or, you know, you described it as a family earlier. And as I was poking around your website, you know, I was excited to look at the different outings that your team went on. And I saw you're eating a lot of fancy cakes together and going to a lot of fun looking places and doing things together. So it seems you're able to also balance that, the work and having a good time with one another.
1: Yes, that, that's a big part of it, right? I mean, yeah, we are a family. I mean, um, there's no doubt about it. And in, in fact, one thing I'd like to add about, about that aspect of it is, you know, so personally, when you transition from being the one who does all the science themselves, right? So as a postdoc, you know, I'm the one in there who was doing the experiments and making certain discoveries, which which I felt were really exciting. But then when you start your own lab, you know, over over the years you slowly transition from doing the work yourself to, to sort of becoming a full advisor. And so in fact, I don't, you know, some of my colleagues still get in the lab and do work, but I personally just don't have the time anymore to to do work myself. But one thing you learn very quickly is I guess it's kind of like being a parent in some senses that the excitement that I get out of someone in my lab making a, a really exciting discovery is way beyond the excitement that I got. Or at least I remember feeling when I made this, the discoveries myself. Mm. Um, there's just something about someone who's in your team or, you know, in your family who succeeds and has this just amazing euphoric moment that is really exciting. You know, even even more exciting, as I mentioned, than I remember it feeling like when I myself was the one who who did a particular experiment that yielded a really cool and novel result.
0: It sounds like the response of a science professor, like somebody who really wants to have that mentoring and teaching aspect to their career, which is interesting because one of the final questions I had for you was, did you ever consider working as a scientist in another capacity?
1: Yeah. So, I, I a simple answer is no. I mean, you know, many people go into industry or, or you know, publications or or there's, you know, lots of fields now that PhD scientists go to, but I always wanted to be a professor. And I think part of that is simply because even in early days as a PhD student, where I had a chance to be a TA, I knew that in addition to research, I had a massive passion for teaching. I've mm-hmm. always loved teaching. Um, I really enjoyed getting in the classroom and and i think that the main goal when you teach is to try to inspire your students to get excited about the subject you're teaching and and that's really been important to me and so that's been an important aspect of my career and i and i would never want to give that part up
0: yeah i mean listening to you talk about your work it just it's hard to imagine you doing anything else so sounds like you're in the right place so do you have any advice for young science scholars sounds like you're in the habit of giving out that kind of advice and i we talked to before about picking a mentor but is there any other kind of general advice you'd have for somebody thinking about going into um, molecular genetics or cell biology?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's endless advice one could give, you know, from from minutia all the way up to maybe big picture stuff. You know, I think I think again, which I said earlier, it's really about passion. I think if I look back at my own career, I think while maybe I couldn't have controlled this, I mentioned that I didn't get interested in in cell biology, till very late in undergrad. Uh, of course, if I had to do it again, I would have gotten interested earlier, um, because I think there were key courses that I didn't take as an undergrad, um, such as in physics and 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 developmental biology that that would have been important. So, if I had to do it again, I would have taken as many courses as possible that were in the in the rough area that I'm interested. And, and in fact, I would go even farther. To say that if I had to do it again, I might have actually been a physics major, because I think physicists have all the really cool tools and quantitative abilities that are just so critical in today's science world. But you know, it's not—it's not important really where you come from. Meaning, I think it's really critical when we have our have our labs to have people that have come from different backgrounds with different interests, because it's really the collective group with diverse approaches and backgrounds, which is just what, that's where the magic happens when you have people from 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 different experiences come together.
0: We started this conversation with me telling you that that I'm a humanities person and don't know a lot about science. I have learned a lot about how a science lab works and and what it's like to be a science professor. If you could, you know, what's something that you wish non-science, non-academics like me knew about your work? What do you think is important for like everyday people to know about your area of expertise?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, so, so w- w- when I have non-scientists ask me about what I do, you know, I talk about Legos and cells and so forth. Um, I, I, I think one, one common response that I get is the assumption that everything we're doing is trying to, to solve a disease, find a cure for a disease, et cetera. And, and I, I think what's really important is so someone like me is, is what I think for years has been called a basic scientist. I think I would prefer the term fundamental scientist, but basically what, what me and others like me are trying to do is just understand the basic principles and mechanisms by which a, a normal healthy cell functions. And the idea is that if you can understand how a normal cell works, then we presumably can figure out what goes wrong in in a disease state or you know cancer et cetera. and so i think what's what's critical i think for the general public to understand is that a lot of the great discoveries that have been made have come out of scientists just trying to understand how a normal self how a normal cell works um i think in in, in that i think a, a big message that i would like to pass along
0: thank you for your time today professor kovar And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around.